0: My
1: Welcome to episode 1334 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs, presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Limberg of The Ringer, joined by Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs. Hello.
2: Brett Lowry, who is with the Brewers again. Again? Mm -hmm. Again, right? Brett Lowry, he signed a minor league contract. He hasn't played baseball for two years, at least not in any way that baseball reference keeps track of. Brett Lowry, this is just some trivia, Brett Lowry is younger than Jesus Montero, who is younger (laughs) than Sonny Gray. So... (laughs) That's all I got. Will Brett Lowry be the Brewers' answer at second base? Probably not, but he has at least now been mentioned on a podcast where, in terms of banter, we have so little else to discuss.
1: <laughs> Very little, yeah. I have been wondering where Brett Lowry was. He Right, he was with the Brewers a long time ago, right? He was, he was drafted by the Brewers in the first round way back in 2008, so that's when he was with them. I don't know what he's been doing in the last couple of years. Perhaps that story will come out, but... Yeah, he had sort of left baseball early in his life and was a top prospect and was a promising major league player at some points and then was not. But he wasn't bad. He was kind of an average-ish player, and uh, people kept expecting more. So maybe there will be more. There will be more. I don't know if it'll be better, but it seems like there will be more.
2: Here's what I have. Okay, we're going to go from uh, Britt Lowry's Roto World page, right? Okay. Okay. February 9th, 2019. Brewers signed infielder Brett Lowry to a minor league contract, announced by Lowry on Instagram. Previous update on the same page. Wednesday, March 8th, 2017, Lowry (laughs) dealing with lower body discomfort. That's it. Okay, then. (laughs) We have uh, Brett Lowry's agent, Joe Urban. Joe Urban. (laughs) said that his client is still dealing with minor soft tissue discomfort in his lower body. Urban claims that Lowry developed the issue as a result of the orthotics he was given last year, who's said Mm -hmm. to be making progress, but intends on getting back to 100% before signing with a new team. Lowry27 was just released by the White Sox last week after batting, etc. So, maybe he needed two and a half years to recover from minor soft tissue discomfort in his lower body.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I believe he had a son during that time, so maybe it was paternity leave, in a sense. Whatever, he Back and maybe he'll be good again So pitchers and catchers Have reported, at least the ones Who have signed, so that Is an off-season milestone It is, as we have discussed many times Kind of an anticlimax when it actually happens Because it doesn't really affect Our day-to-day enjoyment of baseball All that much, but hey That phase of the winter prior to pitchers And catchers reporting is now over And the only real other baseball news that has happened is that we've learned that Kyler Murray is not going to be a baseball player, at least for the foreseeable future, which seemed for a while like it was going to be the case, but now is officially going to be the case.
2: Yep, he made the announcement, at least on Twitter, I don't know where else he announced it, but that came out Monday morning, Kyler Murray said that he's going to concentrate fully on football, not using his words because they don't matter. The, uh, the main thrust is he will not play baseball in the A's. I I guess what you can do now is say, well, the A's never should have chosen him that high. This is why this is why signability picks fall because they're unsignable and you didn't want to sacrifice that first round pick. the A's get no compensation. I think they only get like they got the all all the money they yep. paid him yeah, back except for like back. except for like a small amount for some reason that yeah. he's entitled it's to. Like I'm not sure
1: 200,000 or something that they don't get back. Right. He forfeits the 3 million plus that he was going to get on March 1st and then he's returning I think 1.3 of the 1.5 that the A's gave him as a signing bonus. But yeah, the the bigger deal is that there's no comp pick. So the A's essentially lose the pick.
2: Right. So, uh, I mean, I guess the the easy narrative now is the A's made a mistake and they never should have drafted him that high. But I mean, look, you and I have very little to say about Kyler Murray because we're not, uh, I guess, Oklahoma football and (laughs) baseball fans. But Mm -hmm. the reality is that, again, just to repeat ourselves, when Kyler Murray was drafted by the A's, he was not yet a Heisman Trophy level quarterback. Then he went on to have a far better season quarterbacking for the Sooners than anyone I think would have reasonably expected, and therefore the situation changed. Of course, the A's should have factored that in somewhat in their calculations, and you know what? I bet they did. Because he is mm-hmm. extremely good, extremely talented. The A's figured, well, we're gonna take a chance here, and maybe there's a ninety or ninety-five percent chance that Kyler Murray goes the year. Maybe he's a good quarterback, but not like a franchise first-round draft pick kind of quarterback. They were wrong. This is what's happening. It's too bad for the A's, but bad things happen, especially to the A's. And I guess from a the baseball standpoint, we will move forward not knowing how this would have worked out, but for the fact that the A's do retain Kyler Murray's baseball rights, I guess, forever. Mm-hmm. In the same way that Russell Wilson's baseball rights keep getting traded like before every spring training because teams like to have a inspirational speaker come uh, hang out in spring training, but... I don't know. I don't know what Kyler Murray's going to do in football if and when he gets there, but I guess the door isn't entirely closed on him playing baseball. It's just more likely mm-hmm. to be closed on him becoming good at it.
1: Yep. Anyway, can't blame him for doing the thing that either he will enjoy more or he will make more money more quickly doing or at least get to the highest level of the sport more quickly, whatever his rationale here was and he will hope it works out and I suppose if it doesn't, there is some slight chance that he might end up playing baseball someday, but that concludes that's Saga. And I know that a lot of people have looked at it as a referendum of sorts on baseball versus football and what do young people want to play and which one is more prominent on a national scale and all of that. And I don't know, maybe to some extent it is, but it might also just be Kyler Murray. He's one person and this is the decision that one person made. He seems to have preferred football all along. So I understand why he did it, and I was kind of kicking myself for not asking Susan Slusser about Kyler Murray when we had her on for the Ace preview last week, and it turns out it doesn't matter at all because whatever <laughs> we would have asked and she would have said would be completely out of date now anyway.
2: Yep, so I guess I don't know. Are baseball people going to continue to follow Kyler Murray's progress? when, when will people stop? thinking Kyler Murray will be a baseball player because even now you can say, well, you know, anything could happen if he follows the drafts. Maybe he'll come crawling back or whatever it is that you do when that happens. But mm-hmm. uh, the the second best hitter on the 2018 University of Oklahoma baseball team, not going to play baseball so when do people stop following i guess when
1: he's a star nfl quarterback probably that seems like it would kind of close the door i don't know but that might be pretty soon because it doesn't take long to go from top draft pick to top player in the nfl so anyway hopefully we will have a two-way player someday who is really talented at both by two-way i mean multi-sport more so than shohei otani that would be fun. I recently listened to uh, and watched a a Deion Sanders 30 for 30 about when he played baseball and football. Seems like it's a lot harder to do today, but maybe someday. Who knows? Anyway, we are doing a a team preview episode today, and we're just going to get to that because that is what we are interested in talking about the season more so than whatever is happening right now, which is not a whole lot. So, we will be back in just a moment with Grant McCauley to talk about the Atlanta Braves, and then after another quick break, we will also be back with Nick Pecorro to talk about the Arizona Diamondbacks.
0: And it's hello Atlanta, it's so good to see you again
1: And I can't say for certain I ain't riding on Best So we are joined now by Grant Colley, Braves reporter and co-host of From the Diamond, the podcast that covers the Braves and MLB in general every week. Grant, thanks for coming back.
3: Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And I uh, look forward to chatting with you guys about what should be a kind of exciting Braves team, I think.
1: Yeah, well, last year's team was a kind of exciting Braves team also. More oh, yeah. so than I think probably most people outside the Braves at least expected. So. They obviously made major strides. They won the division. It was kind of a combination of a lot of things going right. What would you identify as the biggest factors in the Braves sort of arriving ahead of schedule if they did? And I don't know, maybe internally they actually expected to do as well as they did.
3: I don't know if they expected it, certainly. I mean, it, it seems somewhat improbable to imagine that a team that loses 90 games for multiple years in a row can all of a sudden just jump up and what seems like a a very quick turnaround, so to speak, to go from being a team toward the bottom of the division to being a team that wins the division. But I, I think there were, to your point, a lot of factors at play. The the Nationals weren't able to live up to expectations. The Phillies fell on extreme hard times in the second half. And you know, the Mets and the Marlins, neither one ever really got some sustained momentum after the first couple of weeks for the Mets. And the Braves just kept doing it. And and they kept doing it in different ways. I think that they had different contributors that really stepped up. I mean, you know what Freddie Freeman is. You understand that, but Mike Foltynewicz blossomed into a front of the rotation starter, and you know was one of the you know ten best if you look at you know ERA and and fielding independent pitching and things like that among qualified starters, not just in the NL but in all the major league baseball, and that says a lot for a kid that people had legitimate questions about whether or not he'd maintain his role as a starter, or maybe he's better suited for the bullpen. But not to bury the lead, but Ronald Acuna Jr. was, I think, a huge reason why the Braves got to where they got. I mean, even though the rest of the team wasn't really hitting as much in the second half, he was. And I think that everyone was feeding off one another. And you had a lot of folks that I think did, you know, exceed the expectations that you would have had for them, modest or otherwise. And it's just a a great mix, I think, of young and somewhat proven as well, if you want to look at kind of the veteran aspect of it. And I think that the management of Brian Snitker and the style and the clubhouse and the culture that the Braves have wanted and have had in the past and wanted to bring back to the forefront. Those were all factors, big factors, in, uh, in why the Braves got to where they got last year, and uh, obviously things that are in place is they want to try to do it again this year.
2: We finally saw one of the big sweepstakes in Major League Baseball end last week when JT Realmodo went to the Phillies. He had been connected several times to the Braves. The Braves, of course, did bring back Brian McCann, but you look at the Braves, and they were connected to Realmodo. They didn't get him. They were connected to Michael Brantley. They brought back Nick Marcakis. They haven't done much to address the bullpen. They haven't gotten a big-time starting pitcher. What they did do in November was signed Josh Donaldson, who has, until very recently, been one of the five or ten best players in baseball. So, at this point in the offseason, it's been so long since Donaldson signed... I know it seems like, at least on the internet, there's a sense that the Braves' offseason has been quiet and disappointing. Is it is this more a matter of they just made their big move really early, or, or have they been looking to do something bigger that just hasn't come to fruition to
3: this point? I really think that they've wanted to do more things, and that it just has not come to fruition. I think they would have liked to have signed Michael Brantley, and I think that one of the things that I've looked at, especially with fan response and, and different things of that nature, is the player ultimately has a choice, too, where he's going to sign. I mean, you you want these guys to want your team and to want to come to your team for the money that's offered. So it's not necessarily, I think, a case of ownership just being out-and-out cheap, or the Braves not identifying the values that they want, or the players simply finding different opportunities. I mean, I can't blame Michael Brantley for signing with the Houston Astros, that's a, a chance to possibly just punch your ticket to the World Series, which is something that, you know, he experienced in Cleveland and would no doubt like to do again before he retires. And I think that, you know, the Donaldson thing was a big way to start the winner. But there's something that I think we can all apply to different parts of, of uh, baseball and life, and especially on social media, a recency bias. I mean, the Braves haven't done anything lately. So maybe it feels like in some ways, they haven't done anything at all. But I think that they have done something by adding an impact bat like Donaldson. I'm curious as to how they're going to handle the rotation in terms of having so many young starters capable, perhaps, of being contributors. But can you do that on a team that's trying to contend? That's a fine line to walk. I'm very surprised that they haven't signed a couple of relievers, just veteran guys. I mean, maybe they will before opening day. That's certainly possible. There's there's still guys out there but I just thought they'd try to go get that stabilizing force and not necessarily Craig Kimbrell, which everybody loves that name and loves the idea of a reunion, but just a guy, maybe that David Robertson type guy. They just, he's dependable, you know what he is and he just kind of helps everybody else manage the load a little bit. So I don't think they're necessarily done making moves. They've, they've wanted to wait out and monitor some of these markets and identify some deals. But I think there are a lot of people that are kind of nonplussed by the Braves, way of kind of going out and and waiting and waiting and waiting after the Donaldson and McCann signings and not pulling the trigger on real muto. And just briefly on that, if the prospect price was what was reported and you're talking about Austin Riley and Mike Soroka or a Tukey Toussaint plus another top starting pitcher, whether that's an Ian Anderson or, or, or an outfield prospect like Christian Pache. The Braves went through extreme pains to build their minor league system, so I think they owe it to themselves to be totally convicted and convinced of any move they make that involves moving a slew of major assets that were gleaned and, and, and collected At great cost at the major league level For a number of years
1: Yeah, and at this point in McCann's career It would have been a bigger upgrade For the Braves to go from McCann to Realmudo Than it was for the Phillies To oh, yeah. go for, from Alfaro to Realmudo But Bill James used to talk about The plexiglass, plexiglass principle Which uh, was basically regression to the mean He pointed out that teams that improved By a lot from one year to the next Tended to sink a little The subsequent season So the Braves just advanced by 18 wins if there is someone or someone's internal who are going to help them stave off that regression who would that be whether it's underperforming players from last year's major league roster if there were any or guys coming up from the farm who could contribute this year
3: there's a little bit of all of that i think that endurance yarte was a tale of two halves last year i mean he's been a a solid hitter is he one of the best as far as plate discipline and drawing walks and being an on-base machine not exactly but he is a guy that can hit his way on base. He's a good contact hitter, and he was far more useful in the second half than he was in the first half when the Braves had a just a, a terrible time trying to set the table for Freddie Freeman and the likes. And so that was kind of solved by Ronald Acuna Jr. My question now is, and I think everybody's question, do you leave Acuna in the leadoff spot? And if so, what does that lineup look like at the top? Because I think Alex Anthopoulos would like Josh Donaldson to bat second, which is where he had the bulk of his impact with Toronto. And... I think Josh Donaldson's a name you have to circle in red and say, this guy could have a major impact. But folks just look at last year and they look at the injuries and they think, oh, well, that's, that's who he is now. We don't know that yet. We may find out and that could be really good or it could be really disappointing or it could be something in between. I don't know. But the, the ability for them to figure out how to properly use, you know, or construct the lineup to maximize their impact hitters at the top, which of course, the Cunha, Donaldson and Freeman, that I think is going to be huge. What they do in the cleanup spot, I'm intrigued to see how that's going to shake out. And then getting Ozzy Albies to have a consistent and full season. He's got to make some adjustments from the left side of the plate. He just had a, a terrible time in the second half trying to hit right-handed pitching. And that's where he's going to get the bulk of his at-bats. And Dansby Swanson dealt with the wrist injury. A lot of hype, a lot of expectations around this kid because he's a former number one pick and he was traded over and it's a big deal. He's got to step up, too. So those are some guys that I would I would say you've got to figure out, or they've got to figure out how to have consistent and injury-free seasons for the Braves to be able to avoid some of that regression. And you can also throw Mike fulton Can he repeat what he's doing? Sean Newcomb, can he do a little bit more? Can Kevin Gossman be the guy he was with the Braves and not the guy he was with the Orioles last year? And what exactly is Julio Terrat? Because he's a guy that was hard to hit last year, but he sure did walk a lot of guys and work himself into a lot of trouble and who's going to, you know, lock down games from the seventh inning on. The Braves have a lot of questions. I think they have a lot of good candidates. They've got a lot of good prospects which we could waste 2 hours talking about probably. But there're just there's so many questions that I think there are answers, but we just don't know what they are, which I think is a better case than having questions and having absolutely no clue how or when you'll ever address some of these needs. I think the Braves are in a better place despite not exactly knowing where everything is going to fit or who is going to fit where.
1: Yeah. You mentioned a few guys there we might want to focus on with individual questions. So Dansby Swanson, he's 25 now. He is coming off of slightly less disastrous, but still not very good offensive season, as you noted, and wrist surgery. But he did, at least according to the defensive stats, go from a below average shortstop to a very good shortstop. Do you buy that? Is there something specific he did to bring about that turnaround? And are the Braves or most people just expecting him to be a, a pretty good fielder now who's kind of, you know, a fine stopgap for the position and instead of someone who's eventually going to hit?
3: I think that they still view him as a guy that can hit. And one of the things that happened, one of the more strange happenings of the Braves' entire 2018 season was a, a cold Chicago afternoon in mid-April where they got up, I think it was eight or nine to nothing, and ended up blowing that game to the Cubs. And the game was played in abysmal conditions. It was freezing cold. It was raining. I think it was in, in the 20s, if I'm not mistaken. I was watching the game at the time thinking, there's no way baseball should be played. And after the game, Brian Snickers said, well, we're just thankful nobody got hurt. Well, the problem is, Dansby Swanson actually did get hurt on that day. And he ended up going on the disabled list not too long after that. And sure, it was only a couple of three weeks, but it was a hot start. It was the exact opposite of what he had in 2017. And I think that the work he'd done and the success he was having and the direction that that was taking him, especially out of the gate when everything's magnified with when you look at everyone's numbers, because nobody likes being a 178 hitter, no matter if it's April or July, like hey, nobody likes that. And nobody likes seeing it on a, on a 60 foot scoreboard. And I think that some of that was some of the pressures Dansby dealt with, just the expectations that, Hey, Every single day, he's got to do something to justify his status as a former number one pick or a top prospect or both. And for the fielding aspect of it, nobody, I don't think, not too many guys, I'm sure there are some, work harder than Dansby Swanson does on the different facets of his game. I think that he took the offensive struggles in 2017 out into the field with him a lot that year, and I think it hurt him. Now, when Alex Anthopoulos came in and everybody wanted to know, well, what trade are you going to make and what phrase are you going to sign and how are you going to turn this team around? One of the things he said right out of the gate was, there are things we can do internally that will improve the product on the field. and One of them is using more information about how we deploy our fielders, where we put them, how we position them, and being able to use that to, in turn, make our pitching staff more successful because we've got guys in the right place. And That's one of the things they did. Defensive placement last year for the Braves, if you look at not just Swanson, but also Ozzie Albee, I think Dick Marcakis, even Ender Inciarte to a certain level. All of these guys, I think, benefited immensely from that. And and Freddie Freeman even won a gold glove, which is an interesting turn of events, depending on how you view that award. But getting back to Dansby, I think they still believe that he can be one of those cornerstone pieces. Will he be the face of the franchise? No, probably not. But I don't think he's asking for that, and I don't think at this point the Braves are asking for that. But he showed some power last year. I loved what I saw with defensively speaking. And if his wrist is healthy, hopefully this is something where he can take the positives from last year and really turn it into that full, solid season of work and silence a lot of the questions about him.
2: So I guess there's really no beating around the bush. <laughs> At this point, Craig Kimbrell remains unsigned for much of the off season. I just kind of assumed he would go back to the Red Sox. That still hasn't happened. Nothing has happened. And of course, in the Braves bullpen, uh, bullpen, they used to have Craig Campbell. And if they have A.J. Minter, who seems like the younger, new Craig Campbell. But in any case, I know this is old rumor, old link, and I think the front offices had to shoot this down over and over and over again. But at this point, where do you put the probability of the Braves signing Craig Campbell and putting him back in the bullpen?
3: I kind of joke about this, and I did the same thing with the Muto trade, because it it all just depends on, you know, what the offers were, how the market shapes up. But I mean, I look at it like a 50-50 chance, though, because the Braves do have some payroll flexibility left, whether that's $10 million, $15 million, just based on on last year's opening day payroll. And an end-of-season payroll, it might be well more than that. And the Braves, and and they did this, and this is their thing, and this was their decision and their words from, a, from an ownership-slash-leadership standpoint in the higher-ups. They have their team president, Terry McGurk, saying, We're going to shop in every aisle, so on and so forth. The money will be there if there's a move to be made that makes this club better, that makes sense for us. Now, it's vague, but it also sets the fan expectation that some things could happen. Maybe they still will. I don't know. He did not put a date on it because he's smart. But Craig Kimbrell is a guy that I would look at for the Braves as the stabilizing piece in that bullpen. And We saw he can be shaky last year in the playoffs. There's no two ways about that how will the hard-throwing closer age in his 30s, which is what we're talking about now. Statistically, it could be the greatest closer of all time by the time he's all said and done, but the Braves certainly weren't going to give him a, a nine-figure contract to find out, and I don't know that anybody is. So if he's looking for that that kind of one-year deal like Yasmani Grandal took when he went to the Brewers and just tried to get basically around what the qualifying offer was, at 18 plus million, that's a move I would highly consider. But... I just don't know that the Braves are, are there, and I don't know that they want to spend what financial flexibility they have all on one particular reliever who's going to throw. And I know they're important innings, but is only going to throw 65 or 70 innings. Can you put that money there when you're a middle market team or when you're spending like a middle market team? So the, the short answer is, I don't know. Uh, the other short answer is, would love to see it. The realistic answer is I don't expect it.
1: A very common question is Ozzy Albies the first half Ozzy Albies or the second half Ozzy mm-hmm. Albies. He, of course, went from a 120 WRC plus in his all-star first half to 67 in his second half. Yeah. Now, if the answer is just he's somewhere in the middle, which is usually the answer, that is, I guess, his full season, and he ended up with a 100 WRC+, plus, so exactly league average hitter, but was still a four-win player because he's such a good fielder, he's such a good base runner, he just does everything well. But obviously, if he does all those things well and also hits, he is an absolute superstar despite being 22. So can he make any strides when it comes to patience and selectivity and... Actually, be that first half guy again, or is he just going to keep getting exploited?
3: I think he can make those adjustments, and I think most young players. I mean, that is the great litmus test: is you know when that when the league makes its first big adjustment to you, what adjustments do you make to get back to doing the things that you did so well for a for an amount of time? And for Ozzie, it was a long amount of time. It was a good run in that first half where he just put himself on the map with all the extra base hits. Of course, like you said, he can run, he fields well. He just he checks a lot of boxes, and if you looked at him in the minors, you would not have expected all this power, but as we've learned over the past few years, the ways that hitters are preparing and going about the art of hitting now is wholly different than it was 10, 15, 20, and, and obviously more years before that, right. and Ozzy has the ability to tap into his surprising power, and I think he's going to continue to do that, but the selectivity's got to improve. I think that he was probably dealing with a lot of frustration uh, about not being able to replicate those numbers, and I think that that can build over time, but he just needs to get back to, I think, some basics. I think, mechanically speaking, if you look at his left-handed swing and his right-handed swing, there are some differences, particularly with the leg kick that he employs on the left side. It just maybe finding some continuity there, and the timing mechanism is going to allow him to just Be a little bit more prepared and a little bit more ready to make those adjustments. And of course, be more selective. We can all say that, but none of us have to actually step in there and be selective on 87 mile an hour sliders at your back foot and 98 mile an hour fastballs, you know, at the letters. So I think he can do it. I think he's got the ability to and, and the wherewithal to do it. But you know, it's one of those things that he just needs to put the lessons that he learned last year in the struggles to good use. I think from the players I've talked to, that seems to be the big thing. You can learn a lot more when you struggle than you learn about when you're successful, and then you can start to kind of bridge the gap between the two and find your answers. And I think that for Ozzy is at 22 years old is not a terrible place to be, but obviously it's critical that he start making those adjustments sooner than later.
2: So big move that the Braves made toward the end of the middle of last season was they got Kevin Gosman from the Orioles, and the idea was the same as usual: get one of those tantalizing arms from Baltimore, and maybe you can help him turn into a complete pitcher. Kind of follow the whole Jake Arrieta path. And if you if you look at Gosman, 21 starts at the Orioles, 10 with the Braves, and his ERA dropped from four four three to two eight seven. That's a really good drop in ERA. That's a run and a half. But then if you if you look at the other numbers, strikeouts stayed the same, walks stayed the same, grounders stayed the same, basically through the same pitches. Mike Voltainevich, as you already mentioned, has blossomed into a front of the rotation starter. But as you look at the Braves' rotation right now, of course, there's a lot of young talent coming up. But is it, is it Gosman who's supposed to be the number two? Is it Sean Newcomb who still walks a few too many hitters? Is it Tehran? Is it Toussaint? Is it Soroka? What is, what is the state of the Braves' 2019 starting rotation beyond Fultonavich, who seems like he at least is, is mostly a given?
3: Uh, That is an excellent question. I I think if you were to line them up, and the Braves did this last year, and I expect them to continue the practice this year, where they would continue to bring guys up from the minor leagues to kind of employ a a six-man rotation of sorts for a good chunk of the season. Not that they'll ever come out and say, hey, our six-man rotation is these six guys, because it might be a couple of different guys that, that are able to push a guy back a day. And obviously, you don't use your fifth starter a ton, in the early going in April, but I'll be interested to see how the Braves line them up. If I were to do it right now, I would say Mike fulton obviously, is your opening day starter. I would be tempted because maybe it's the old baseball adage of just kind of breaking up the pitchers by showing you something different. I would be tempted to go with Sean Newcomb in the second, then Kevin Gossman in that third spot, Julio Tehran in that fourth spot, and then I'm such a fan of Mike Soroka, not just for the, the ability, the talent, the physical talent, But the mental makeup of this kid is light years beyond any other 20-something pitcher that I've ever come across. And this has been this way since I talked to him the first time at 18 years old, 18 and 19 years old, as he was really making his way through the minor league. Not only is he superbly respectful, which is amazing, he his way of thinking about pitching and his appetite to learn more about what his pitches can do just absolutely blows me away. Now, the shoulder thing, is a bit of a concern. But then if Soroka is not quite ready or that's not going to be the way the Braves want to go, they have a Tucson that they can go to. They have Luis Gohara, who's another guy that's kind of in a make-or-break situation as far as his prospect status is concerned. Max Freed, Kyle Wright. There's a lot of guys you can go down the list and say, maybe this is a guy that we could look at here. And I think we're going to see a mix of those names throughout the year. But if I had to handicap that starting four right now, barring any other moves and You know, signing some free agent, which there's not too many of those left that are totally tantalizing outside of Dallas Keuchel, perhaps as far as what would be looked upon as an upgrade. I think they're going to have to trust that some of their young players and young pitchers are really going to be able to take that next step and be contributors, not just in the fifth starter spot, but also as needed throughout the season and especially in case of an injury, which could change everyone's plans.
1: Johan Camargo has been overshadowed by Albies and Acuna, and understandably so. He is older and not as talented, but since he came up in the middle of 2017, he has been worth about five wins to the Braves. He's been really good, a definitely quality starting level player, and he's now kind of been displaced by Josh Donaldson, and so he is picking up a whole new bunch of gloves and trying to figure out where he fits. So where where do you think he gets most of his playing time in 2019?
3: I think we're going to see Camargo just about everywhere on the infield and possibly in some outfield situations as well, because the Braves are doing something, and this shouldn't be shocking based on the fact that we're all seeing it now on a on a bigger stage in the playoffs, and also from where Alex Anthopoulos came from right before he became the Braves general manager, and that is coming from the Los Angeles Dodgers, one of the many clubs now that sees the value in having not just one starter at a position, but having some versatility to mix and match based on that night's opposing starting pitcher or slumps, injuries, all the things that happen over the 162 games. And I think that's where Johan Camargo is going to find his real niche at this point. Now, he could end up back at third base if Josh Donaldson's a one-year thing, which very well could be. And and that may be a great thing for the Braves. if That is indeed what happens at, at that point. But Camargo's body type has changed so much in the last three or four years as he has just grown matured filled out and and really put in the physical work to become a much more well-rounded hitter because he had no prospect profile when he got added to the 40-man roster about three years ago I had fans hitting me on Twitter with Camargo what's the point you know why are we holding on to these marginal guy I mean the guy has a good infield arm but what else does he do not much. I mean, this is a wasted roster spot. What are we going to do with X, Y, Z other prospect? Which, you know, spoiler alert, a bunch of guys who aren't in the in the uh, organization anymore. Um, it, it's, it's funny how that works out when you actually go through the process of seeing a guy develop. As the Braves have watched Camargo, and he's saying the right things. He feels he's selfless about the Donaldson thing, and I think we'll see him at short. I think we'll see him some at third, especially you've got some interleague games that will be automatic opportunities to maybe DH to Josh Donaldson on that day. And I think we'll see him at second base some. And if an Ozzy Albies or a Dansby Swanson goes into a deep freeze for two, three, four weeks or whatnot, I think that you'll see a little bit more Camargo at that particular position at that particular time to allow for some of these guys to not get either worn down or bogged down in in the long grind of the 162-game season And I think the Braves enjoy having that. And they've got him. They've got Charlie Culberson, who had a a breakout season of his own last year. It was superbly valuable at a number of positions. They like having that versatility. I I wouldn't be surprised to see him try to find another versatile guy that can be on that bench. Because after Culberson last year, the Braves didn't have a lot there. So they feel they've not only upgraded at third base by getting Donaldson as an impact bat that we can quantifiably say, numerically, statistically, was one of the best hitters in baseball for quite a while. And then what Camargo does to the depth of the overall team, they feel like those were two boxes they were able to check off this winter, even though they didn't even go out and sign a super utility guy.
2: You had already mentioned Austin Riley as someone that. The Marlins were looking for in a JT Realmuto trade, and I kind of think of Austin Riley in a similar way, in the way that I think of Nick Senzel with, uh, with the Reds. Now, Senzel looks like he has more of a clear path to playing time, but as you just mentioned, the Braves might be looking for someone who's a little more versatile off the bench. Uh, Riley last year had a pretty successful half season, most of, more than half a season in, in AAA. He already, of course, lit up AA, and it seems like Riley is is knocking on the door, and at the moment, at least, if you look at the Braves' roster, especially now that they signed Nick Markakis, there's nowhere for Riley to play on a regular basis. But what kind of role in 2019 do you see for, for Austin Riley? Do you see him maybe not doing the Ronald Cooney Jr. thing where he is the MVP of the team down the second half, but do you see him making a meaningful difference, uh, certainly in the July, August, September part of the season?
3: I think that he could. I mean, I think that so much of this is contingencies based on, you know, what Josh Donaldson brings to the Braves. Is he going to be the pre-injury Josh Donaldson? Or is he going to be a guy that you've got to come up with a plan to fill the playing time, which obviously Camargo fits in that box as well. But I think that if Austin Riley had avoided the knee injury last year that cost him about five, six weeks in the middle of the season, we might be looking at a very different tale about where exactly he would be in the in the pecking order or in their plans in terms of when we could expect him to debut. I don't know that I expect him. In that first half, and like you said, maybe in the second half, there's a place for him, even if he doesn't come in and win the rookie of the year award. But this is a guy with monster power. It's a guy that's, you know, from a hitting prospect perspective, he's easily the top of the Braves farm system. And I think that he's a guy that other clubs are going to continue to call on if the Braves are looking in trade. So his value is tied to a lot of different contingency plans for Atlanta, and some of them include trying to find a place to play him, which is why he's going to see some outfield time this year, or trying to figure out if they are best served to go out and find someone who they can retain for a while, not two years of a catcher, even an all-star catcher, that will be worth expending the trade ship, Austin Riley, which is one of their biggest, if not their best trade ships at the moment. So I'm fascinated to see where exactly... His future takes him in 2019.
1: The Braves have suffered some of the penalties from the sanctions that were imposed on the previous regime because of their behavior with international signings. Some of those penalties are just kicking in this year with the July 2nd signing period, and they're severely limited in the players that they can sign and the amounts they can give to them. Is this something that you see as potentially shortening the Braves' window and it's going to be harder for them to sustain this success because they'll have less talent coming up through the system? Or is this something that they can easily overcome?
3: If this was a Braves team that was comprised at the major league level of more guys that were late 20s, early 30s, and more guys who were you know destined to hit free agency in, say, 2020 and 2021, I would be a little bit more concerned about these particular sanctions, but they weren't hit as hard in the draft. So their number one way of continuing to bring in young players, and and I guess most teams, you know, main way in terms of the, the amateur side, you know, here in the United States, as it were, that is still open to them. Now they are going to lose a draft pick this year. I believe it's their, their third rounder, if I'm not mistaken, and they're not going to have that to use. And that obviously hurts, but They're not under severe draft sanctions, and they are going to get a bonus first-round pick for the whole Carter Stewart thing that didn't work out last year. So I think they can continue to keep that pipeline open, how exactly they do it and how well they do it, if they can continue the path they've been on the last few years, if they can supplement the the farm system through some smart trades and signings and, and acquisitions that they've also done over the past few years. It'll be interesting to see what the mix is there, but I don't necessarily think it shortens their window because you have a twenty one year old Ronald Lacuna, twenty two year old Ozzie Albies, you know, Mike Fultonevich is what, twenty-seven, so many other young starting pitchers that are knocking on the door or will be in the next year or two. I just think they're in a good place. But it could start to deplenish or deplete some of the waves of talent that the Braves obviously would like to see making its way to Atlanta sometime soon. But long story short, I think it'll be certainly, what's the word I want to use here? I'm uncomfortable trying to find ways to deal with not being able to sign high-dollar international players, but there have been some great players that have been signed for lesser amounts over the years, so... Maybe they'll get lucky and win the lottery. Who
1: knows? So we talked a little bit about the Braves perhaps having a less active offseason than they had hoped, but one Mm -hmm. somewhat under-the-radar move they made was hiring Mike Fast away from the Astros. He had been the director of their quantitative analysis department. He's now special assistant to the GM of the Braves, and the Braves really won a a bidding war there. I think Mike interviewed with about half the teams in baseball before he picked the Braves. (laughs) So do you know if there's been any big investment on the analytics or player development side or do they see that as an area where they can improve and potentially help counteract some of the losses because of those penalties or just the regression that could be coming?
3: You know, that's a great point. And that is a guy that's obviously sought after. And you look at the not just the, the collection of talent that the Astros have, but how exactly they put together that collection of talent. And I think any front office today is going to want to have the brightest baseball minds working for them in order to analyze and determine what could be some factors that could maximize any club's potential on a given year. And I think for fast and for a guy like Anthopolis, for that matter, those are the kinds of things that he wants to be cognizant of is every single way they can improve. And like I said, you know, earlier on about how when everyone was asking him, you know, when are you going to make your first move? Who are you going to trade for all this other stuff last winter? Who's untouchable? Who, who is available? All that. Alex Anthopoulos was already going about the process of trying to determine what he had in house, meaning what is, what are the strengths of my front office and the infrastructure and how exactly can I get the most out of it and where exactly do I need to add and or subtract? And that's something I think that he has done in bringing over Mike Fast and, you know i don't know 100% i don't guess anybody does because this front office likes to keep things very close to the vest mm-hmm. you know what level of change they may make in some of the more traditional approaches that the Braves have i think historically been taking but they did make some changes to their you know their scouting department and changing you know letting go of uh, brian bridges and roy clark i don't know if that's related or has nothing to do with it or if it's simply a a paradigm shift based on Alex Antopoulos wanting to have the exact people that he wants running departments. But yeah, the Mike Fass thing is one of the more interesting acquisitions over the winter that probably won't get as much play, but we'll discover, I think, over the next six months, year, two years, however long he's here, we'll discover the differences and possibly reap the rewards of having that kind of analysis And that kind of person in place as the Braves make important decisions. And like you said, if they're losing some pipelines where they can get their assets, especially internationally speaking. I think you can use all the help you can get in any department you can get it. So I think it's a tremendous hire.
1: All right. Well, we have ignored Nick Marcakis. We have ignored my man Tyler Flowers, who I slandered earlier when I said that Realmudo would be a big upgrade over their catching situation. Oh. Such a big Tyler Flowers fan here. But I guess we have touched on the big storylines heading into spring training here. So you know how this ended last year. It ends the same way this year. We must make you make a prediction about how many wins the Braves will get this year I don't know how many you said last year whether you saw 90 coming but now that they have that in the rearview mirror how many wins do you think the 2019 Braves end up with
3: I feel like last year I said somewhere around 75 and that Uh if (laughs) things broke right they'd be 500 this year I'm going to say I do think that the Braves are a 90 win team now I could break either way within four or five but I still would like to see them complete the picture of the acquisitions that they're going to make, both leading into the season and, of course, see where they are during the season. But I do think this team, on paper, talent-wise, is good enough to win as many games as they did last year. The question is now. Is 90 wins enough to win the National League East Because some people made some serious moves In other cities that they're going to have to deal with
1: Right, exactly Alright, well you can follow Grant on Twitter At Grant McCauley You can find his podcast and his writing about the Braves At FromTheDiamond.com And wherever podcasts are hosted Grant, thank you very much for coming back
3: Thanks so much guys, talk to you soon
1: Alright, so we'll take one more quick break And we'll be right back with Nick Bacoro of the Arizona Republic To talk about the Diamondbacks
3: Finally Collapsed.
0: All the actors were hotly protesting The people they had to portray Were a little depressing So a grassroots initiative Based upon sharing and trust Went into production To harness the power of dust
1: All right, so we have returned and we are joined, as we often are, by Nick LeCoro, who covers the Diamondbacks for the Arizona Republic and AZ Central Sports. Welcome back, Nick. Hi, Ben. Hi, Jeff. So, I guess before we preview the 2019 Diamondbacks, we should do a little bit of post-mortem on the 2018 Diamondbacks, particularly how their story ended. I think, not to inflict any terrible memories on Diamondbacks fans, sorry to rehash this, but I believe on August 30th, they were a game and a half in first place, and then they went eight and twenty, I think, from that point on, and ended up at eighty two and eighty on the season. Was there any grand conclusion to be drawn from that collapse, if we can call it a collapse? Is it just randomness? Was it some inherent weakness of the team finally coming back to bite them?
0: I don't know. I mean it, it felt like I, I I think actually they were in first place on the first of every month, the first day of every month of the season, which is pretty crazy to end up two games over five hundred. I think it was just a matter of like everything going wrong all at once um Mm -hmm. maybe there was a little bit of like you kind of felt like this team was was getting away with some things at various points in the year and you know sometimes you would look up and they would win a game and you'd be like i don't really know how that happened and and maybe just a lot of things caught up with them at once but it was like they stopped hitting their starting pitching was pretty good but it had you know some hiccups the bullpen was a mess at, at various points they ran into a lot of outs on the bases that were costly they made key errors in the field it was just sort of everything all at once it was it was pretty crazy <laughs> and then from there they traded their best player and they lost a couple really great
1: players too so that was how the offseason went i i guess it seems like the diamondbacks are the case of a team where if you want to talk about not tanking but some anti-competitive behavior or teams not spending as much as they could spend or not going all in when they could go all in this is a team that was two years removed from a playoff spot. They were a winning team in contention until late in last season, and their underlying numbers were perhaps even better than 82 and 80. This is a team you could look at and think, well, maybe in an earlier era of baseball, they would have said, hey, we were close and we should invest and we should try to get even better. And instead, they went in the other direction and they traded their franchise player and a couple of guys left via free agency. So what prompted the decision? I know that they had a record franchise payroll last year, so it's not like they haven't been spending, but what made them decide, okay, we're going to retrench or rebuild or whatever you want to call it?
0: Yeah, I mean, well, what's what's interesting too is that they're kind of getting some pressure from people about, and you know, I keep writing it myself, about why they haven't gone further in, in the direction that you're talking about. Um mm. You know, because they did let those guys go, they did trade Goldschmidt, but they, you know, they haven't really gone in, in total rebuild mode, and they're kind of trying, it seems, to go into this season, you know, kind of hoping to contend. You know, they, they have a lot of veterans on the roster still, including a few guys that are coming off pretty good seasons, um, and they've chosen not to not to trade them. But kind of getting back to to what you were saying, I mean, I think they knew they weren't going to be able to afford to bring back Corbin and, and Pollock. You know, they they did have kind of a veteran aging roster, a lot of guys with dwindling years of control. It sounded like they had conversations of some kind with Paul Goldschmidt and determined that uh re signing him wasn't gonna happen. Uh, you know, whether it was, you know, them not necessarily being comfortable with the price range or or, or what exactly it was, they they didn't seem to want to take that chance of of, you know, going into going into the 2019 season you know with a a kind of a depleted roster you know kind of really needing a lot of things to go right for them to contend in the first place and then you know what if they fall out they get to july and they're then trying to trade a a kind of you know limited positional bat i mean obviously paul goldschmidt's very valuable but sometimes you get to the deadline and there's not a lot of teams looking for a first baseman then what kind of a return are you looking at? Or, you know, worst case, do you wind up just taking him into the end of the year and, and collecting just a draft pick in return for, you know, a guy that valuable? I don't think that they liked that outcome. So that's kind of what led them there. And, yeah, I mean, we'll we'll, we'll see what it, what the rest of the season, end, you know, how it ends up playing out because, you know, you can kind of look at the roster and there's some good players certainly still remaining there's not a lot of depth and you kind of feel like there are a couple of, of injuries or, or, you know, guys not performing well away from, you know things going really badly, and them needing to trade away everybody else, and kind of actually get this rebuild really kickstarted.
2: As you as you kind of reflect on the twenty eighteen Diamondbacks and moving forward, one of the things that did prop up the Diamondbacks for a long time last year was the fact that they were a very very good defensive team. It depends on what measures you look at, but they caught the ball really well. They uh, <laughs> Jeff Mathis received well, and then the defense caught the ball well behind him. And if you look at the the situation moving forward, corner outfield basically the same, but. Cattell Marte is now moving from shortstop to second base to center field. Eduardo Escar will take over at third base with Jake Lamb, moving to first base to fill in for Paul Goldschmidt. Jeff Mathis is gone behind the plate. It's going to be a lot of, I guess, Alex Avila and Carson Kelly. And maybe most notably, Wilmer Flores is going to be, it seems like the everyday second baseman. So is this sort of an intentional shift toward taking more chances defensively? Are they confident that it's going to be just fine defensively? Or is this just sort of, identifying a pattern in something that really there was no greater intention at all, just kind of putting pieces where they fit?
0: Probably a little bit of all of those things. I, I think that they know that they're not going to be quite as good. They they do think that Catal Marte has the ability to play a very good center field. They seem to think that Wilmer Flores will be fine at second, but at the same time, I think that they have also acknowledged that they're they're really just kind of looking for a little bit more offense. And how much of that has to do with with not having Paul Goldschmidt? I'm I'm not sure, but but it you know probably factors in. I mean, they're going to be needing to find ways to to make up for his absence. Obviously, they're not going to be able to do that entirely, most likely. But uh, you know, if they get a little bit more offense out of all of those positions, you know, maybe that that gives them a, a chance. I mean, I, I kind of doubt it, but. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing about this offense is, I mean, the the times over the last like half dozen years when they weren't going good were usually the times when Paul Goldschmidt wasn't hitting. He was just at the heart of everything that they did offensively. And to imagine them having to go a full season without him in the lineup, maybe made them a little bit more willing to put Wilmer Flores at second base. I I don't know. You know, they're they're obviously hoping for bounce back years from guys like Sousa and, and Lamb and and hoping that, you know, Nick Ahmed's, uh, you know, power output was was legitimate, that Peralta was was legitimately as good as, you know, can, can be that good again. But, you know, they'd certainly have their work cut out for them to, to you know, be a, a above average offensive team, I would say.
1: So you just recently wrote about how Mike Hazen, Diamondbacks GM, kind of made a heel turn when he went ahead and traded an extremely popular and productive player in Goldschmidt from a public perspective. That was a move that happened almost out of nowhere in contrast to some signings and trades that seemed to drag on for weeks and months. So was this in the pipeline for a while or did it come together very suddenly? Did they talk to a lot of other teams before they pulled the trigger with the Cardinals? And how do you think they ended up doing?
0: Yeah, I think I think they were talking with a handful of other clubs. There really weren't a lot of of contenders, you know, looking for first baseman. I think the Astros were a club that was that was in the mix for sure. And the Cardinals, those were really the two teams that were that were the most heavily rumored. Yeah, I mean they, they knew it was it was a possibility and they you know, Mike Hazen I know had breakfast with Paul Goldschmidt early in the offseason and kind of told him that this could be coming so you know they they did a pretty good job i think of of keeping it relatively quiet and then yeah i mean how did they do i, I don't think you ever trade paul goldschmidt and really you know win the trade certainly from a pr perspective and it's it's hard to kind of you know just be a an, an average fan and, and look at that and, and have it make sense but you know i mean one year of control of a guy in this day and age to get back a guy in carson kelly who you know they think has a chance to be a you know, a real leader at the position, above average defender, you know, they think he can handle, you know, handle himself at the plate to get a, a starting pitcher, even if it's just a, a back-end guy and Luke Weaver is still valuable. And then they got a prospect on a draft pick. So, you know, most people in the industry think that they did pretty well for one year of Paul Goldschmidt. So, I mean, yeah, you, you're you're always giving up the best player in the trade or almost always when you're making deals like that. But, you know, I think they did the best with what they could.
2: One of the things that the Diamondbacks did before last season was install a humidor to treat the baseballs, keep them standardized. They did what Colorado did so many years ago. Don't even remember when the Rockies did it. But if you look at the Diamondbacks numbers last season, they looked a lot more normal than they had in, in recent years. The hitting was about the same at home as it was on the road. The pitching, about the same at home as it was on the road. Didn't make the ballpark too pitcher friendly, reduced it from being too hitter friendly. You would have been on the ground talking to player. What was what was the player response to having the humidor? Did it come up? Did people notice, or is it something that they just kind of dealt with and everybody was okay with?
0: No, guys definitely noticed it. AJ Pollock was a guy who seemed to talk about it the most. I think he thought it was it was a, a big factor and thought that there were balls that he and other other guys would hit that would have gone out in years past. You know, people around the club were were sort of sensitive. I don't think that they wanted it to become a topic for guys to talk a lot about and, and get in their own heads. You know, I don't know. There were there were some massive tape measure home runs hit at Chase Field last year, just not necessarily by Diamondbacks hitters. So it, it kind of anecdotally, like for everyone that you would see hit, you'd be like, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I just think it's easy to kind of talk yourself into every ball that doesn't get out being a humidor ball, you know, and, and oh, that's why that didn't happen. I'm not sure. I would, I, I'm kind of curious to see how, how it goes this season, get a little bit more of a sample size. I'm also curious, I don't know if you guys know, they installed turf at Chase Field yeah, now. I was just going to ask you about that. Uh, yeah. So I'm, I'm very curious to see how that plays because I mean, they've had a lot of trouble growing grass at, at Chase Field over the years, uh, especially in the summertime and the grass always played really, really quick. So, you know, a ball that a shortstop would probably handle pretty easily at Wrigley Field would be a ball that would scoot through for a for a hit, and you know, and it was also balls getting to the corners or getting to the alleys a lot quicker in the outfield. I think that contributes to you know Chase Field being a, a good place for for doubles and triples. And I wonder, you know, if if the ball is going to to slow down at all with the with the turf. I really have no idea what it's going to look like. Uh, I have no idea how it's you know what guys are going to say about how it feels. I'm really curious to see how that goes.
1: And while we're on the subject of the ballpark, there has been this ongoing dispute with the Diamondbacks and Maricopa County about repairs and upgrades to the ballpark. And it seems like the Diamondbacks got the upper hand there. So, what are the implications of that, I, I guess, both for the county and for Chase Field?
0: I don't have a ton of information on that. I know that sometime in the last year, they were given the go ahead to start having conversations with other municipalities about a different location for a new Mm -hmm. stadium. Derek Hall said the other day that they're no further along now than they were a year ago, which I don't know if you, you know, do you take that at face value and, and just mean that they've been focused on other things? Or do you take that to mean that, you know, places haven't been rushing to To fund a new stadium for them i think there's always been an assumption that if there's going to be a new ballpark here there's a pretty good chance it'll end up on tribal land maybe out by where salt river fields is near scottsdale but uh, nothing has has really come about and it seems like it's been pretty quiet. Uh, they've managed to keep keep it under the radar. Perhaps they really haven't been focused on it, but I, I, I really don't have a ton of insight on that.
2: Looking at where the Diamondbacks are, of course, you had mentioned earlier that they, they think they they would like to be competitive, maybe sort of Rockies-level competitive in the season ahead, but there have been occasional trade rumors this off season of maybe Gazak Krenke could go somewhere, and one of the other really volatile assets players that they have in the starting rotation is Robbie Ray, we, I think we probably talked about Robbie Ray every year, but it seemed like in 2017, he turned a corner, dropped his ERA by two runs, and last year his ERA went north by a run, and his, his walk rate took off, but he, he, he missed about eight or nine starts over the course of the season, but, you know, stuff is still there. It seems like, I know there was talk earlier this offseason, if the downbacks had Robbie Ray in the market, they wanted to get more for him than the Mariners got for James Paxton. Whether or not that is the right thing to, to try to do and tell other teams, I don't know, but... Where is Robbie Ray health-wise? Where is he stuff-wise? What do you think was uh, was wrong with him in 2018? And, and where is the stock moving forward?
0: <laughs> you know, I was – Anticipating a Robbie Ray question, and I, I went and started like refreshing my memory on on his on his season, and I don't really have any any good answers. I mean, it's not like he he did finish the year strong. That is that is worth noting. He had let's see, I have his game log up right here over his last eight starts. He had a two point oh nine ERA, but he also walked twenty six guys in forty three innings in that stretch. So it wasn't really throwing a whole lot more strikes necessarily. He wasn't getting hit. And I think that the, what the Diamondbacks are hoping, look, I mean, if if Robbie Ray pitches like he did in 2017 for the first few months of 2019, they've got a really valuable trade chip. They've also maybe got a guy that can help get them legitimately in the in contention, right? So it could work both ways. But uh, that that's really the hope. I mean, I, I don't think that they were going to be able to get that kind of return for for Robbie Ray coming off of uh, an inconsistent season like he had, but. He does have, you know, a a 95 mile an hour fastball from the left side and has shown the ability to to pitch like an ace in the past and I think if he can do that again then maybe that's the that's a that's a big trade chip at the de- at the deadline for them.
1: So last year the Diamondbacks had Robert Vanskoyak as their hitting coach, kind of their hitting counterpart to Dan Heron, who's the the pitching strategist there and he's been a, a cutting edge guy who's helped people embrace more of a, you know, line drive air ball type swing and since then he's been hired away by the Dodgers. Now, I wouldn't say that hitting was necessarily a strength of the Diamondbacks last year. It's it's hard to separate it from the effects of the humidor, but they didn't excel in that area in the way that you'd think that they might have, and they have been a team that has embraced a lot of that philosophy. They had J.D. Martinez. He seems to have helped spread those ideas. They had Daniel Descalso, who's someone who really benefited from that, and other people on the team, too. Did you see that philosophy spread last year, and was it beneficial on the whole? Uh,
0: another really good question. <laughs> they had <laughs> a whole roster really filled with guys that that kind of believed in that that type of of, of swing mechanics and, and approach yeah. to hitting. I think uh, Nick Ahmed was a guy who redid his swing. Steven mm-hmm. Souza had worked with Vanscoyke in the past. Pollock. Yeah, you mentioned Descalzo. David Peralta didn't necessarily work with with Robert in the past, but he came to spring training talking about you know a lot of those same principles. Jeff Mathis tried to redo his swing, wound right. up ditching that uh, <laughs> early on in the year. I think
1: that was one of the things I was most looking forward to heading into last <laughs> yes. season. Was can Jeff Mathis rebuild his swing? We and- had
0: dueling swing change catchers in uh, John Ryan Murphy and Jeff Mathis last year. Yeah. neither of them really uh, panned out. <laughs> right. So I I don't know. I I, I think uh, I, you know I I don't think that that Robert was able to really work mechanically with guys in his role last year. I think that he was a little bit limited in part because there were two other, you know, big league hitting coaches on, you know, traveling with the team Mm -hmm. whose jobs were to do just that. I think he was trying to come at it a little bit more from a, from a, a, you know, attacking, you know, how to attack pitchers or how, you know, what to look for and the ways that pitchers are going to attack you, just kind of trying to strategize literally the, you know, he's the hitting strategist uh, or was. With with each guy individually, so I, I I don't know. I'm I'm curious to see what he does in LA. I know he's got a, a similarly a roster there that has a lot of guys that believe in the same things, and I'm I'm curious to see how you know how receptive some of the other guys are to to a, a person with such a unique background as a hitting coach, a guy who who really didn't even play in college. So uh, he he's he's interesting uh, on so many levels, and the Diamondbacks have. Completely changed their their hitting st- structure. Really, I mean, they they don't mm-hmm. have Dave Magadan or Tim Laker anymore as as their uh, hitting coaches. They've both been replaced, and and you know Vanscoyek is gone as well. So it's kind of a, a whole new look. And you know the the Wilmer Flores acquisition was a little bit of a response to a lineup that that had a, maybe in in the front office's mind a little bit too much swing and miss, maybe a little bit too much of an emphasis on that stuff. And I, I think they were hoping that, that Flores can add a little bit of a of a of a contact line drive, you know, bat to ball type of, of approach.
2: Maybe you came here anticipating a Robbie Ray question, that would be the smart thing to do, but maybe you didn't come here anticipating a Socrates-Brito question, but we're going to have to ask. One of the reasons that I'm actually moving catal Marte to center field is because they lost AJ Pollock and they didn't have a center fielder. Now you could say Socrates-Brito has not proven himself in the majors. In the majors, he's been quite bad. He's got a 229 OBP, over 175 plate appearances, but last year, as you well know, in AAA, admittedly a hitter-friendly league, hitter-friendly ballpark, Brito... Had about twice as many strikeouts as he had walks, but he slugged 540, got on base 38% of the time. He was a very good hitter. Seems like he has learned to hit for power, and we know that he can run well. A few years ago in spring training, the Diamondbacks seemed like they were really hyping Brito up, and it just... He hasn't gotten that much of an opportunity to play ever since. so where what is his status with the organization at this point since he's sort of at a juncture at a twenty six years old?
0: Yeah, for sure, Andy's out of options, so that's gonna put even more pressure on him to to perform in spring training and and you know earn his way onto this roster. and Christian Walker is another guy who is out of options and kind of forecasting their their roster they're probably gonna have to make a decision on one of those two guys i i might not sound like that tough of a decision or that gut-wrenching i suppose because it's just christian walker it's just socrates brito but you know walker could be a guy that that uh could get some at bats at first base in a in a sort of platoon with jake lamb who has always struggled against lefties so it is a bit of a decision i think and yeah back to brito yeah, I, I think he has all the tools you want to see. Um, he he probably isn't a, a center fielder. I don't think that they view him as a guy that that can play out there unless it's sort of a, you know, they're going to try to get away with having him out there type of thing. The last few years, he's really just been plagued by injuries. I can't think of all of the different injuries. I remember him fouling a ball off his foot. I remember him sliding into home plate in spring training and uh, like tearing a ligament in his thumb. I know he's had a couple of different Uh, injuries in winter ball like two years in a row he he came back from those previous injuries during the season only to hurt himself in winter ball so it's just been one thing after another for him and yeah he is getting up there in age but he also just hasn't had all the experience of of guys his age so he's a he's a bit of a tricky one to forecast look I remember being very high on Socrates Brio and, and kind of wanting them to go with him over Yasmani Tomas three or four years ago, whenever that was in spring training when he was lighting the world on fire and they wound up going with Tomas. It just hasn't really happened for for Brito But this will be a a big camp for him So
1: obviously Patrick Corbin Was one of the best stories of the season For the Diamondbacks and for himself He attained a a quite Lucrative contract because of his Improvement that he had started to make the Previous season and then really just Went all in on with throwing the slider All the time and really having two types of Sliders and that seems to have been Something of an analytics Driven recommendation from the team That he adopted and made the most of have there been other cases on the pitching staff of things like that of something coming down from the front office or from Heron and recommending guys that they make a, a certain tweak or certain guys maybe who've been working on a new pitch or something to your knowledge this offseason, someone else who could make that kind of
0: breakout? well, I don't have any specifics for this season, but yeah, I mean that that was that sort of thing. I think Zach Godley was was a similar one. I am sure that Dan Heron has been looking very closely at, at Luke Weaver and trying to figure out the best ways for him to go about it. But yeah, I mean Heron plays a big part in in the the success of all of those starting pitchers and that has been the one area of the team over the last couple of years that's probably been the most consistent. I don't think it's not a coincidence, you know. I, I think there's I think there's something going on. I am interested to see what adjustments they end up making with Luke Weaver. I'm interested to see what they might do with Greg Holland. Uh, And I'm interested to see, well, I'm interested to see Merrill Kelly, just period, Uh, because I don't really know an awful lot about
2: him. Oh good cuz that was going to be my next question. Uh, tell us the extent of what you do know about new uh, pitching staff member Merrill Kelly.
0: Well, he had some success in a very difficult place to pitch in in Korea. I, you know, he was buried in the Rays organization years ago and just, you know, never really saw himself, you know, getting to the big leagues and and thriving there. I think he thought he needed to just get out of there, maybe go to Korea for a year and come back and I think he wound up spending 3 years there. I'm blanking on all of the guys. I think it, like he was he was in the Rays organization when when like I think it was Chris Archer, Jake Odorizzi, Nate Carnes, Alex Torres. Does that all do those guys all fit the timeline? Does the story check out? I I think that all those guys were were prospects around the same time as him and and on the same like AAA Durham staff over a, a two year span, and he just wasn't getting an opportunity. You know the the scouts that I talked to that that saw him pitch overseas last couple of years likes the signing for the Dimebacks. They're not crazy about it. I mean, they they see him as a guy that can maybe fit in as a as a number five starter. You know, with the kind of downside being a guy that can provide you some innings in the bullpen. They didn't pay him a lot. They didn't guarantee him a whole lot of money. So it's kind of a low risk type of acquisition, and it kind of makes sense. I, I don't think that the Dimebacks are expecting to be getting this year's Miles Michaelis. I don't think he's got that same Potential for dominance But who knows Maybe he does I Again, I don't know A ton about him But the people who have Seen him at least Make make me think that Maybe that's not What they're getting
1: And amid the departures On the free agent market The Diamondbacks Did retain the services Of Eduardo Escobar Whom they traded for At the deadline last year And they acted very quickly To sign him for three years That was a, a move That was made During the playoffs So what was it About Escobar And his time there That I guess Made them so Mutually eager to extend their arrangement
0: yeah i mean i I don't know from his perspective it it wasn't a a really it wasn't a bad deal for the for the club right i mean i I think it was three and 21 um Mm -hmm. and uh you know it's it was sort of strange that he would get so close to free agency and and not want to test the waters but you know, I mean, looking at the market, maybe he maybe he made the right move. I mean, it, it's guaranteed money and, you know, life-changing money and all that. And he, he, he seemed to enjoy his time here. They, I think, were looking at him at the time as like, look, first of all, it's, it's a pretty decent contract. And second, it's a guy that's really versatile and it doesn't necessarily lock them in to anything this early in the offseason, right? I mean, they could have still moved, you know, they could have, as they did, they could have moved Paul Goldschmidt at the time. They could have moved Jake Lamb. They could have traded Catal Marte or traded Ahmed and moved Marte to short. Like, the ability for Escobar to bounce between second and third really opened up a lot of avenues for them going forward at the time. And, you know, I guess, like, the other thing, though, as to why he would take it, I, I guess I've I've sort of viewed him maybe a little bit, as being a little bit better of a hitter than he actually has been because you know you look at his career and he's just sort of been an okay hitter even the last few years haven't been that great it was really just a a very strong you know first three four months with the twins mm-hmm. and just an okay finish with the diamondbacks so maybe he was smart to to take what he what he what he could get and uh and look i mean so many guys are still sitting out there unsigned, including marlon gonzalez and and we'll see what he ends up getting, but you know, 21 million's nothing to sneeze at.
2: I guess we've spent all this time talking about current Diamondbacks. I might as well ask about a now former Diamondback. The book is closed, at least for the this chapter, on Shelby Miller with the Diamondbacks. He uh, he wound up with a 6.35 ERA over a total of 139 innings. When Shelby Miller was traded from the Braves to the Diamondbacks, it might be the last time I remember seeing a transaction and feeling my jaw on the floor, happened at a very <laughs> inconvenient time of the winter meetings when we all went out to company dinner, dinner and we sat <laughs> <Yes>. down <laughs> five minutes later. That trade happened. It's a, it's a vivid moment in uh, in my life, and that trade is not completely played out, but at least from the Diamondbacks. And it's, it's played out. Shelby Miller was gone. He was bad. He was hurt. On the Brave side, if you want to look at this optimistically, you could say Aaron Blair turned into... uh into nothing. Dansby Swanson hasn't learned how to hit yet, and Ender has been valuable, and that's not a good giveaway, but he's been Ender and if anything, the Braves have looked to platoon him or move him. So with you having seen this all the way through, it's been a little over three years, how do you reflect on the Shelby Miller trade, how it was received at first, and how it looks now?
0: Yeah, I mean, it looks still pretty bad from the Diamondbacks' perspective, right? I mean, they really didn't get anything good at all out of him and they still gave up a fair amount of value even though those guys yeah haven't really turned out to be I mean Dansby Swanson hasn't really set the world on fire and you can really pretty easily look back and and question them having selected him number one overall especially when Alex Bregman went right after him and looks like a guy who could be one of the best players in baseball for a long time but you know I, I don't know i don't know what to make of of shelby 's time here it was It was just it was just such a disaster from from the very beginning. I mean this was a guy who was slamming his his hand on the on the mound during a you know after his delivery in multiple starts he did that like i've never seen anything like that he was He was just so out of whack and he seemed to be putting so much pressure on himself to live up to the trade you know he's not a bad guy, he really wanted to do well i don't think that there was much chance that he really would ever turn it around here given how much pressure he continued to put on himself even last year when coming back from surgery I I think he was still like just viewing himself as as you know I, I've got to live up to this. I've, this now's my chance to finally do it and he just never could so I mean I think it's good for him that maybe he can go somewhere else with a little bit less pressure and maybe get himself back on track but yeah I mean it also just kind of led to Lots of other things happening when Ender was gone, it led to to Tomas getting you know that much more exposure. I suppose it led to uh, them needing to to make that big trade for Steven Souza, which didn't work out. You know, maybe it led to them not bringing J.D. Martinez back, or I I don't know. I mean, there's just so many different different tentacles to that to that trade and just sort of the the fallout from it. And of course, obviously, it led to people getting fired in the front office. So, you know, if uh, if they hadn't made that trade, I, I suppose they wouldn't have Mike Hazen and company running the team, which for a lot of fans would, you know, a lot of people think that he's been the right choice uh, and, and has done some good things here, so. Yeah, I don't know. That's kind of a rambling answer, but uh, it was it was it was not fun to cover. I, I Shelby Shelby really wanted to do well, and I I you know I felt bad watching him struggle. It's, it was hard to watch.
1: Speaking of players who haven't panned out, I was going to move on to our traditional closing question about predicted win totals, but I just, in the course of this interview, remembered that Yasmani Tomas exists <laughs> and and is still in the Time Vax organization. And looking at his AAA stats from last year, he hit even worse than ruzny castillo hit for the red sox in AAA a last year and in a better hitters league so are downbacks fans ever gonna see he tomas again if they're not going to reno aces
0: games yeah. <laughs> i think he'll be in spring training uh <laughs> but, but uh I, I don't know i mean maybe i i, I guess that uh I, I guess that not having Paul Goldschmidt around and, and not having an awful lot of outfield depth at the moment opens up a couple of different ways for him to to get back to the big leagues. They have talked about him maybe coming to spring training and getting some time at first base. But I mean, you know, you, you look at their outfield at the moment, and it's like, what, Peralta, catal Marte, Stevens, Souza, Gerard Dyson. And then I'm not really sure what you would, I guess, Tomas might be the next the next outfielder on the depth chart, if you're not counting like Rob Snyder and Matt Caesar and and guys like that that are on minor league deals, I think Travis Snyder is another guy they signed. So there's there's a potential for him to to get back into the into the thick of things, if he hits like he can hit. He certainly didn't hit well at all in Reno, but I, I mean yeah, it's that's gosh that's been another. Another one that's been not fun to cover. (laughs) Remember, this was a guy that that showed up with the Diamondbacks uh, with the chance to play third base. Um, and actually, did play some third base at the big league level. They were, it turns out, a little bit off on their evaluation of Yasmani Tomas when they gave him that contract.
1: <laughs> well, on that exciting note, heading into 2019, how many wins are you expecting/slash projecting for the Diamondbacks?
0: That's such a hard one because, like I said, I could kind of see like their roster, you know, staying relatively healthy and then being around 500. I could see a few injuries leading to them being well below and then trading away even more guys and and ending up with a a really low number. I I guess that's what I'll expect to happen. I'll go with 72 wins. Mm -hmm. I could see it going, you know, five to seven wins in either direction, to be honest, if, if things go really bad.
1: Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I think our, our team preview guests tend to be on the high side overall. So maybe you have broken that trend now. <laughs> I don't know, but <laughs> you're correcting the, the overall bias. So you can find Nick on Twitter at Nick Ricoro, and you can read him at azcentral.com. Thank you very much, Nick. Thanks for having me, guys. All right, that will do it for today. Thanks for listening. As I prepare to post this podcast, the aforementioned Susan Slusser has reported that the A's are about to announce their signing of Brett Anderson. So there's your Kyler Murray consolation prize A's fans. That ends some of the uncertainty about the bullpen and the rotation that we talked to Susan about last week, at least for the 50 or 80 or 20 innings that Anderson is available. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com effectivelywild effectively wild. The following five listeners have already signed up, but their support to keep the podcast going eddie dudek keith rader kevin j mcveigh joel watts and will hickman thanks to all of you can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group effectively wild I know no one wants to be on Facebook anymore but this is the one good group on Facebook it's the one reason to be on there you can also rate review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms keep your questions and comments for me and Jeff coming via email at podcastfangrass.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance you can pre-order my book co-authored with Travis Sachik, The MVP Machine comes out late this spring and we will be back with another episode a little later this week.